everyone. Welcome to this uh, live cast here from the Peak Prosperity Studios. I am your host today, Dr. Chris Martinson. You can call me Chris. Uh, we are going to have a great show today. We're going to be bringing in good friend, special guest, George Gammon today. And uh, just a little housekeeping first. Remember, uh, nothing you hear on this program should be considered medical or financial advice. Always do your own due diligence, of course. We're all about the learning. We're all about bringing good quality information to you. Data is just stuff. Information is inform is data that can be turned into action. Uh, so we're here to try and help you understand what's going on in the world. And we're doing the best job we can to get through a really complicated environment right now. There's um, a lot going on in the world. So today we are going to be talking about uh, economics, of course, with George Gammon. He's uh, just a macro specialist. And we're going to be talking about the death of the dollar. It's a complete possibility here, given what's going on with the petrodollar being taken out. So um, we'll talk about that inflation on everybody's minds and, of course, food and food insecurity, things like that. This is the world in which we live right now. Um, so I should say today's program, we have a sponsor for today's program, and the sponsor is uh, Secure.com. And um, Secure is the company that, uh, hey, we all need secure messaging and things like that in today's world, right? So uh, Secure is spelled S-E-K-U-R. It uses proprietary encryption to provide fully private and secure instant messaging and email. I use it. All communication is held securely in Swiss servers without using any of the big tech platforms. Listen, in today's day and age, your email or messages or even bank information can easily be intercepted by bad actors. Your private information, pictures, chat, and email, hey, they're consistently mined and sold by big tech. So when you use a free product, you are the product. Secure never minds your data and never asks for your phone number. You can easily and securely communicate with both secure users and non-users alike, allowing you to send completely secure emails to your doctor, banker, lawyer, anybody else. You can even set a time to destruct the message. Even your internet provider can't peek in on your emails. Secure is your solution to stop the constant theft of your digital identity. It costs only five bucks a month for the messenger or $10 a month for the messenger and email combined. Go to secure.com and take back your privacy today. That's secure.com. Peak Insiders get 25% off. Special dib for our insiders. Or if you're not an insider, promo code PEAK15 gets you a limited time 15% off. So thank you to Secure for being the sponsor of today's show. Let's dive right in. Uh, we've got so much to cover here today. By the way, your comments, we're monitoring them here. So if there's time, it's appropriate to bring a comment out for... Um, us to discuss, we will bring it right up on the screen. So just be aware when you're commenting where we might be bringing that up here to talk about. And so without any further ado, I've got to bring on board my special guest, my good friend, George Gammon. Hey, George, Chris. thanks so much for being here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk, man. A lot to talk about. Oh, this sure. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, one of the things I'm going to be doing, George, is going over the crash course again because it's time to update it. Um, and you know what it did? It really it built through the economy, energy, the environment. I, I think it's more important than ever today for people to really know how the economy works. You know, and, and right. it's, it's complicated, of course, but they don't do a good job telling it to us, right? You could teach a fifth grader how the money system works, and I've talked to tens of thousands of people, you know, audiences, and I always ask the question, you know, who in the audience, where did you learn how money was created in the banking system? 
And there are only two hands have gone up. So, and that one was a master's student under a radical Marxist, uh, you know, economics professor at Oberlin. And the other way had a Marxist econ professor at UMass. And that's it. Nobody else. The Marxists are the ones that know how the banking system works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. So so uh, can we start there? I mean, I can't think of anybody better to help us understand. So like, what is money? What, what is money? Well, money should be a store of value. I, the, when I think of money in its uh, purest form, I, I think of it in part as a way to store your excess productivity. And it needs to be, that, that's one. And then there's a few other things. I mean, Mike Maloney describes this fantastically uh, mm -hmm. well, he does. where he talks about the uh, fungibility it needs to be able to, uh, it needs to be transportable. It, mm -hmm. You know, you need to be able to transact with it. And there's like seven different things that it needs to have, the qualifications. Uh, but for, for me, that, that's the difference between money and currency is currency is really something that we can transact with. And uh, it does that very efficiently. But money is a store of your excess productivity. Uh, that for me would be like gold as an example. So if I work 40 hours and I make $1,000 and I only consume 500 of those dollars, well, I want to store the excess productivity, in other words, the $500, in something that will not lose value because that, that, that I worked hard for that and I want to maintain the purchasing power. So that, that would be kind of where I would start with money. Now, what most people consider money, quote unquote, are just dollars. You know, this is currency. So mm -hmm. I think that's more to your question is how does currency work? How is it created? How is it destroyed? And how, how does it not work? And I think we have to start with the commercial banking system. And uh, when someone goes to a bank to get a loan, let's say to purchase a house, if they're approved and let's say Wells Fargo gives them the $500,000 to buy the house, they're not taking that $500,000 from someone else. They're actually creating new dollars. So if you looked at the total aggregate money supply, let's say M2 is a measurement, it's not a very good measurement, but we'll use that as an example. Uh, the M2 money supply, all else being equal, would have gone up by the $500,000 amount of the loan. When the money is paid back to the bank, then effectively it would be destroyed. You can think, you can take it to ex its uh, extreme to understand it better. So let's say you get a loan today and you pay it back tomorrow. Well, you know, the money supply goes up by 500 and down by 500,000. So uh, then you take it to the next step and you talk about the Federal Reserve because a lot of people say, well, the Federal, the Fed is printing money, quote unquote. And it, it, it kind of, it facilitates this. Uh, but it doesn't, it can't do it by itself uh, from a standpoint of even if the Fed expands its balance sheet to 9 trillion, 10 trillion, 15 trillion, it doesn't necessarily mean that there are going to be more currency units in the real economy chasing goods and services. That has a lot to do with the government deficit spending. And then, of course, going back to the commercial banks and how much they are lending. Now, the argument there is that, well, if they drop interest rates down to zero, that's going to prompt more people to take out loans. And, uh, you know, the banks are going to be more than willing to give a loan if they're going to make money. And to a certain extent, that's true. 
But there are scenarios where there, the consumer balance sheet, as an example, is just completely levered up and uh, you can have all the money in the world or all the, um, I like to look at the balance sheet. So I always say at the balance sheet capacity. I think that's a, a better way of, of, that's a more honest way of, of looking at how money's created with the banking system. So I say, you know, they could have all the balance sheet capacity in the world, but if they don't have any uh, borrowers to lend to, or if they don't have anyone that can most likely pay them back, if they don't have any good loans, well, they're, they're not going to do them. And same thing with the consumer. You know, we could have 0% interest rates all day long, but if you don't have enough income to take on another loan or another debt payment, then you're, you're not going to take out that debt. So there's a lot of variables that are involved, but when the government deficit spends and it's purchased by, uh, uh, well, it can be purchased by two different groups. And this is where we really get into nuance, but I, I think your audience can, can handle this, uh, this level of discussion or this level of detail. Uh, let's say Janet Yellen is issuing a billion dollars worth of treasuries. And so you're gonna have two groups that will be potentially purchasing these treasuries. It's gonna be a non-bank or a bank. And the non-bank, let's say it would just be like you or I, the average Joe or Jane, and the bank would be like JP Morgan. Well, that bank is gonna have an account with the Fed. So they're most likely going to use um, bank reserves, which are, is just their type of cash. That's kind of the bank's cash. And that would be a liability of the Fed, just like uh, your dollars are a liability of the commercial banking system. So if the JP Morgan buys those treasuries, then they go onto their balance sheets and then they give the federal government their bank reserves and the federal government is going to send out the check. And so on net balance, that's going to increase the amount of dollars that are circulating because the dollars didn't come out of the real economy to begin with to buy the treasuries. But you can see the difference if the average Joe and Jane or the non-bank entity actually buys the treasury, then it's sucking dollars out of the economy and then just spending the same dollars back in. And therefore on net balance, it's a wash until, until the Fed comes in and does quantitative easing. And then what happens is we call them primary dealers. So the Fed says, we want to do, and this is the New York Fed's trading desk. They say, we want to buy a billion dollars worth of treasuries. So we want to buy those from the primary dealers. Okay, because that's really the only group they can, that they can uh, transact with. So uh, they buy the billion dollars worth of uh, treasuries from the primary dealers. Well, where did they buy them? Well, okay, if they bought them from the average Joe and Jane, and then the Fed buys the, uh, uh, the, the, the treasuries, well, then what they're doing is they're creating additional dollars. Why? Why does that happen? Because, see, the average Joe and Jane is trading, or the non-bank entity, is trading an asset for a cash asset. So they're trading a treasury for the billion dollars. Therefore, the money supply or the currency supply, chasing goods and services, has increased by a billion dollars. You see, so again, just to reiterate here, so when everyone's on the same page, Janet Yellen issues a billion in treasuries. If that's bought by a bank, then when they spend money, Janet Yellen back into the real economy, that's going to increase the supply of money because the dollars weren't sucked out to begin with. But if those treasuries were purchased by a non-bank, when the Fed comes in, does QE, then it increases the money supply because the non-bank entities are trading those treasuries for uh, additional currency units that again, increase the overall M2 money supply. So if, if well, you can- 
if, if you can just and, get your head around that, you're going to know more than like 99% of the people that even work at the Fed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I got to put the nuance is really important. Thanks for bringing it. So there's one other nuance I, I picked up on maybe 2010 or so. I would actually go all the way down to the individual. It's called a QCIP number. It identifies the actual tranche of bonds that comes out. So they might be issuing some 10 years at 1.5% or whatever, right? And it comes with a number. It's got this big, long digity number. And so I would track those and i say, where did those go? And I would track it all the way down to the Fed balance sheet. And I would find out that, George, they would take these. The Treasury would hold an auction. JP Morgan or somebody like them would buy them. And that same day, they would be on the Fed's balance sheet. So it was oh, yeah. as if the Fed bought them directly, which is monetizing debt, which is, to me, that's where you get inflation. Because as you say, the, when the deficit spending billion dollar treasury you know, per, auction is held, and let's be honest, it's going to be what? A couple trillion dollars this year, probably, of deficit spending? Or something? Not more. I would. If you not know, they, more, they right? always say, "Oh, yeah, it's going to be two trillion," and then it adds uh, five trillion to the overall debt load. So it's like, where did that extra yeah. three or four trillion go? Well, it, mm. uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't I mean that's just like they put that extra step in to make it even more confusing. But again, if you understand, take out that J.P. Morgan middleman for a half a day, and they take their vig. Of course, you know it's very good business yeah. to be in. I'm sure. Yeah. But the Fed basically just is enabling all of that deficit spending, right? Well, to a certain degree, because the argument there is that if the Fed is buying, that's creating more demand for treasuries. Uh, because if you were JP Morgan and you weren't able to flip that debt to the Fed, then you, if you had to hold it on your own balance sheet, then you'd be like, no way. You know, I'm getting a, what, a 7% negative real yield? So, because I, I, I have a PL that I have to worry about. So, I'm not going to, I don't want to buy that 10 year treasury. So, therefore, they would demand, or most likely, they would demand a higher interest rate if they were able, if they were not able well, yeah. to flip it to the Fed. So, yeah, uh, that that's how the Fed theoretically can uh, really affect the market. But what's really interesting is when you look at the Fed doing quantitative easing, you would think that it would suppress interest rates, meaning drive the price of those bonds that they're buying up. But in the past, it's actually done the opposite. And this really? is because, yeah, because the market comes in and says, okay, well, if the Fed's doing this, then it's going to be un, uh, inflationary. And therefore, we're going to unload all the treasuries we have, which, which lowers the price, even though the Fed's uh, increasing the, the demand. So the aggregate demand actually decreases, even if the demand coming from the Fed actually increases, right? So the, the well, real well, correlation- where, where did we get the, the $13 trillion of negative yielding bonds worldwide? I mean, that's that sounds like a lot of demand to me. Uh, well, the, the negative... Uh, okay, so now you're talking about the ECB and you're talking about the Bank of Japan. Well, yeah, well, I mean, that the, there are negative yielding bonds, meaning they're below zero. They have a negative rate of return. That number hit $13 trillion. That included even some AAA corporates were in there. It included a lot of sovereign debt, mostly in Europe. But I mean, it was just... That sounds like a lot of demand to me and that people are bought. I mean, that has to be. That's a huge number. It's way bigger than the balance sheets. It's yeah, but when you look at the Fed's balance sheet specifically, uh, which, I was, what, which was what I was referring to, and then you look at the 10-year Treasury here in the United States, you'll notice that during QE1, QE2, QE3, and even QE4 after COVID, uh, when the Fed is out there buying and increasing the size of their balance sheet, the 10-year, the interest rate 
the yield on the 10-year treasury actually goes up, not down. And then when they did quantitative tightening, if you remember that back, uh, what was that, 2018, something like that? Uh, the 10-year- yeah, that, that didn't go so well. <laughs> no, it didn't. And, and now, and maybe we can talk about that too. Now they're coming out in the Fed minutes and saying that they're going to do $95 billion a month worth of QT. Yeah. And that's way more than they did during the last round of QT that actually collapsed the market. But uh, during that last round of quantitative tightening, the, uh, the interest rate on the 10-year actually went down. It, it really is uh, very counterintuitive, but it's mostly because the market is seeing it as either uh, disinflationary if the Fed's doing QT or inflationary if the Fed's actually doing quantitative easing. And that's why you see such a strong correlation, in my opinion, between the Fed's balance sheet and the stock market. You know, when the Fed's doing QE, the stock market's going up. I mean, the stock market, the S&P 500, has pretty much followed the, the Fed's balance sheet. If you take both of those uh, charts and layer them over one another, they're, they're almost identical, uh, which begs the question, you know, what happens to the S&P 500 when they start doing 95 trillion, or excuse me, 95 billion a month in uh, QT and the size of their balance sheet starts to decrease? You know, will we still see this correlation between their balance sheet and the S&P 500? Uh, I would argue most likely, and that's probably yep. what the inversion of the yield curves have been trying to tell us over the past about two or three weeks. Now, I love pictures. Um, Aaron, can you bring this uh, this picture up? It's on, yeah. And um, George, your picture will will get your your face tucked in the corner here. But um, so what we're looking at here is uh, central bank liquidity and comparing it to big tech valuations here. So oh, yeah, well that's uh, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, Tesla uh, now falls in there. Look at that correlation. I mean that that's not that's not accidental, right? Yeah, it's it's the same thing with the S and P though. Same thing. Yeah, yeah it and, is. And, and, it, I'm. And again, I think that's because, and this makes a lot of sense with the interest rates going up, uh, therefore the price of the bonds going down when the Fed's actually doing quantitative easing because the market is seeing that as inflationary and therefore they're rotating out of bonds into stocks and the Fed's demand uh, just isn't soaking up the excess supply. Yeah, and here's here's uh, just the Fed balance sheet against the S&P. Yep. Um, same thing. We're seeing that same very strong correlation. So obviously, the, but here's here's what I'm confused by. Um, so I can't quite get my head around that that somehow the bonds are, are in any way reflecting reality. You're, you're suggesting that during QE, they're actually there's less demand. They're selling off, so the yields are rising. But George, we're sitting here at it's still under two percent on a ten year. I I can show you. Italian 10-year debt at around 2%. So, A, I wouldn't loan the Italians anything under any circumstance, mostly. Yeah, yeah. But but not when I'm guaranteed to lose 5.5% per year off of that at official rates of inflation, but probably close to double that if we're being more honest, right? Who their Bonds are certificates of confiscation right now. Um, who's who's buying them? Who's holding them? Well, it's, it's large hey, pools of money. Whenever we can. That it's large pools of money that either... Uh, that's their best option, believe it or not, or they have a way through financial engineering to make uh, a better yield, and it, so it doesn't have a negative real rate, or uh, they're just buying it for capital appreciation. I mean, I, I think that's a large part of the market. They're not buying it for a bond. They're buying it as a stock. 
You know what I mean? Where they're just buying it because they're speculating on the price. Uh, the other way would be if they can use that treasury, especially like a T-bill, and they can use that to manage their balance sheet. A lot of the big banks do this because if they have those treasuries, uh, they can make a lot of money through rehypothecation and through derivatives and the ability to use those treasuries to make their balance sheet look better with the, what I call garbage assets, with the garbage assets that they have that have a higher yield uh, in the eyes of the regulators, especially around Basel III. So just to just to bring everybody along for this ride, like like if I could, if I'm only getting two percent, say on a on a bond, if I can lever that up five times and buy five times as many using my same amount of cash, then I'm getting an effective ten percent yield, right? Is that what you uh, mean? Kind of. If you can take, if you've got that two percent bond, and you can lend that out to twenty different people, and charge them. Oh, that too. Yeah. A rate that's rehypothecation. <laughs> and they, and they see this happens all the time. And our good friend Jeff Snyder calls this the collateral multiplier that's in, like, such as the repo market. So you've got one of these dealers that has one treasury, literally one treasury, and they'll lend it out to 20 different entities, let's say hedge funds, pension funds, et cetera. And those entities will use that treasury just like they own it. They'll use it as collateral for dollar liquidity. They'll use it to, you know, for their balance sheet for the regulators. They'll use it for all these different reasons as though they own it, and they don't. It's only one treasury that 20 people or 20 entities are claiming as their own, and they're paying a little bit of a spread back to the original primary dealer who actually owns the treasury. So yeah, there's a negative yield for the guy that owns it, but what does he care? He's lending it out at uh, 20 times and making a killing off of it. So that's, uh, you know, people have to understand that a lot of times these large pools of money own bonds for reasons other than just the yield. And, and that's hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense when people look at it that way. Because to your point, if you look at it, just owning a bond strictly to get the yield, no one in their right mind would ever buy one. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad they found something useful to do because... <laughs> I don't, I just don't get it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so as uh, All Night Hater here says, uh, rehypothecation, hell of a drug. He, yeah, he's, no, he's a really good guy. Uh, he Is, comes to all the rebel capitalist lives and stuff like that. Yeah, he's great. Oh, great. Glad to hear it. Um, so thanks for that, All Night Hider. Uh So, yeah, where do we, um, and, and speaking of which, there's a, uh, there is a rebel capitalist coming up in June. Oh yeah. Rebel capitalist live at the end of uh, June. And you're going to be speaking. <laughs> I am. <laughs> That's a yeah, great segue. <laughs> yeah. Take yeah, it away. Can, yeah. No, people can check it out at rebel capitalist live, uh, com. We've booked probably, uh, we usually have about 12 or 13 speakers. We booked like seven or eight so far. And uh, you can see who we've got and the people that we're booking are going to be just as awesome. Oh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be great. Really looking forward to that. Really am. Um, and uh, I, I love meeting the other speakers, but uh, I love meeting the crowds, too. The people yeah. who show up to these things are that's Pop obviously they make the they make the whole thing worth it. Yeah. So looking forward to that now. Um, so I wanted to take this little tour because, you know, this all sounds complicated, but let me back up where you started. You said, Hey, I go into a bank. I need to borrow $500,000 cause I'm, I'm buying half of a house in 
the suburbs of, of uh, San Francisco. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I'm buying yeah, a garage right. to park right. my car in. And so I need 500000 Uh And so when that happens, I go in and a lot of people have the misconception that because other people have deposited 500000 in the bank, just like uh, with uh, Jimmy Stewart and the old movie, The Black and White, It's a Wonderful yeah. Life. Yeah. It, some people put the cash in and then he loans it out to people, right? Yeah. That's not how the system works, of course. When the bank says, well, George, we like you. It seems like you're a good guy. They clickety-click on their keyboard and you get $500,000. They created that money. Currency was created in that moment as an offsetting liability, right? So mm -hmm. your debt, um, their asset, right? And so that gets created, but it can go away. Now, here's my question, because the Fed, as part of its QE, also did, they bought two big blocks of things. One is mortgage-backed securities. Here's my thinking. Mm. I might be wrong, so help set me straight. If I take, the, if you take that 500000 out, that's real cash, right? You give that $500,000, say, to a garage builder, right? Doink. And that's their money now. You have the, you have the garage, but they have the 500000 That's out in the wild. That belongs to them. Now, that mortgage is sitting over there at the bank, and the Fed comes in and says... Hey, we're going to we're going to give you that. We're, we're going to take that from you and they buy that $500,000 mortgage from the bank. The bank now has 500 cash again sitting there, but they're holding this mortgage-backed security over here, right? So now, um, let's imagine for a moment that uh, that I go I go belly up or you go belly up, can't pay it off, you, you default on on the garage note, right? Doesn't happen. There's still other two blocks of inf of there's the first 500 that went out to whoever built the garage, and then the bank got the 500 back, right? So aren't there two units of money out there now for, for one transaction? Uh, the bank got it back, which, to help me understand that, the, what are you referring to specifically? The, the, the bank was holding that mortgage on its, on its balance sheet, and then it got sold off. And then it got sold off, okay. And then yeah, they- Yeah, the, the, the Federal Reserve took it. And gave yeah, them so five hundred thousand dollars in 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 place of that. And so they default on it. And 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 the the owner defaults on it. Yeah. Well, the Fed takes the haircut, or whomever's holding mm -hmm. the the asset takes the haircut. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there's two uh, units of five hundred thousand dollars, because all what happened is the mortgage-backed security, to your point, was an asset on the bank's balance sheet. And then it just it's just an asset swap with the Fed. So for that uh, uh, $500,000 loan, they just replace it with $500,000 in bank reserves. So now that isn't $500,000 that are circulating in the real economy chasing goods and services, because that's just a liability of the Fed. Uh, in order for it to increase the overall M2 money supply, it would have to be a liability of a commercial bank, you see, and that's an asset of a commercial bank. So uh, where it could, where it could increase the money supply is if the bank used that, uh, those $500,000 of the bank reserves to, in, to extend their balance sheet further, because that gives them additional balance sheet capacity to create more loans in the future, which actually mm -hmm. would be a liability of a commercial bank, which would increase the dollar supply that's circulating in the real economy. Yeah. It, and, um, with, and the only last wrinkle in that story would be those reserves that are held by the banking system on the feds uh, um, over at the fed. They do get they do get some actual vig out of that, right? They get the interest on excess reserves, the IOER. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. That's actual hot cash, isn't it? Because that, oh, that's profits. That goes right out to shareholders and everybody, right? 
Well, this is a fantastic point that, that very, very few people have thought through, uh, even in kind of the, the macro space. So if we go back prior to the GFC, there were very few reserves in the system. I mean, the, the Fed's balance sheet was at 800 billion, compare that to 9 trillion today. Uh, so that's a lot more reserves. But the amount of reserves in the system, the amount of bank reserves, which what we're talking about, the bank cash, it's a liability of the Fed, only about 40 billion, Chris, 40 billion with a B. And uh, the last time I checked, this would have been maybe a month ago, uh, there was over 4 trillion in bank reserves. So uh, th this is a massive increase. So back in the day, prior to the GFC, my point is the banks really needed to compete with other banks for your deposits because that was the, the cheapest source of, of bank reserves they could get to expand their balance sheet. But now they're completely, so what would happen is if the Fed raised rates, let's say, to uh, 5%, you would see the rate of interest that the bank pays you or your checking account or uh, savings account go up as well. Because all banks, you know, they're competing for those bank reserves that are, there's scarcity, right? Now what happens, as, as you know, I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, the Fed has flushed the system with bank reserves. So the natural rate of overnight, the overnight rate would naturally be 0%, if not a little bit negative. But the Fed has to come in and do something called IOR, which is interest on reserves. So they've got to say, okay, banks, we're going to pay you, let's say, uh, you know, 2%, uh, because if we don't pay you, then there's no way to keep the rate of interest, the Fed funds rate, at a level which we choose, right? So say Fed funds is at 2%, they would have to raise IOR up to 2% uh, to, to make sure that uh, those banks weren't lending at a lower rate, right? To make sure that the overnight rate still stayed the same or within their range. But what this does is this doesn't incentivize the banks to actually increase the rate of interest that they're paying you. Why? Because they don't need your money. They don't need mm. your money anymore. It's it, they don't need your money. In fact, you're almost a nuisance to them. And this is one of the main reasons why you saw all the banks shut down during COVID. But a lot of them, you haven't seen them uh, open back up as far as the branches. I remember before I came to Columbia, the Wells Fargo, which I banked with uh, right across the street from me in Phoenix, they only had like, uh, like nine to five hours, but it was just a drive through. Like you, like the door was locked. Like you couldn't even get in there without an appointment. And I'm like, what, what is going on here? Where's the customer service? And the answer is it's gone. Why? Because you're a nuisance to them. They don't need you at all. So going back to your original point, as the Fed raises interest rates and there's no competition for deposits, therefore the banks most likely won't increase the rate of interest they pay you at the same rate, that's pure profit for the banks pure profit. So you say, well, what's the big deal at 25 basis points? Okay. Well, let's say they raise that to, uh, you know, let's say they normalize and get back to three or 4%, not that they could, but let's just assume that they, they do for a while. I mean, then the fed's paying 4% on $4 trillion <laughs> of these bank reserves. And again, that, that is just straight profit. Now what's really interesting is and a percent to think is 40 billion. A percent there you go. of a, a four yeah. trillion is forty billion. Yeah, so forty it's billion free, risk-free cash. Here you go. 
straight right. from the Fed's printing press to you. That's awesome. Well, they're electronic little keyboards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so that that's a great point that most people just don't uh, or haven't really thought through. But what's really interesting is that could be significantly inflationary as well, because then you got to ask yourself, what are the banks going to do with all of their extra profit? And, uh, you know, who knows? They, they might buy some shares back. They might buy treasuries. Uh, they, they most likely will buy assets to try to get uh, an even greater return. But then who are they buying them from? Well, if the banks are buying them from the non-bank entities like you and I, what is that doing? That's increasing the money supply. That's increasing the dollar supply uh, that is circulating in the real economy, chasing goods and services, because that bank is going to buy, let's say, stocks from Chris Martinson. And so you have the stocks. You can't take those stocks and buy a Big Mac or a car with it, right? Uh, it, it's kind of idle uh, cash equivalent. But what you do is you say, okay, bank, I'll give you these stocks. And that bank gives you the $100,000. Well, now all of a sudden, that's $100,000 that did not exist before. That increases the liability of the commercial banking system, or M2 if you want to look at it that way, uh, by that $100,000 they just gave you. So uh, my good friend Joseph Wang, who used to work at the Fed, he ran their New York trading desk. Uh, this is a point that he's made several times where, uh, what was the math you did, the $40 billion in additional just free money that they get from the Fed, that could be $40 billion that gets injected into the real economy that could exacerbate inflation even more than what we've experienced over the past couple of years. I mean, there are so many unintended consequences and knock-on effects. It, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, so let's... Um... Uh, let's. I want to set the stage. So let's go back. Great. Uh, thanks, Aaron. So two things I want to note on here. First up, I uh, get my little magic drawing tool out here. Um, most people aren't aware of this, but um, you know, I keep trying to make this point because it seems important to me. Which is that uh, there we go. So this is the great COVID rise, but actually starting in September, this. Uh, let's can George. Can you talk to us about what what's going on here starting in September? 2019. You remember that? My hair sure. was on fire back then. Yeah. I thought so, the world was coming to an end. Yeah. So the the repo rates spiked up to 10%, and which actually, uh, for a, a moment, the Fed lost control over the Fed funds rate. And because what happens if repo goes up to 10%, well, that's going to suck liquidity uh, from everywhere else and all kind of all boats in the harbor rise and fall with the tide. So if the tide's going up, then, uh, you know, it's going to make interest rates all over the place go up. And so the Fed had to step in and, uh, you know, do everything they possibly could. Uh, and that brought the rate back down. But th that's a ominous, ominous warning sign because you've got the main dollar funding market. That, that's the, the U.S. repo. And you've got that basically blowing up. And uh, th that is, a, boy, you want to talk about a red flag or the canary in the coal mine. Uh, in fact, if the Fed would not have stepped in there, uh, that would have completely collapsed pretty much the banking system. You would have had something very similar to what we saw uh, during the GFC. Uh, the banks would have just, uh, not just the banks, I mean, my goodness gracious, that, that, that would have been catastrophic on a, on a level that most people really can't uh, understand. And so, yeah, let Fed, me, yeah, go ahead. One, one, one quick thing. Um, so this is just zombie firms right here. Um, so a zombie firm for 
people who aren't totally familiar with that. It's 2022. You know we're going to talk about zombies, right, George? So um, <laughs> the, but, <laughs> zombies. But a zombie firm is a company that has uh, that, that can't even really can't even meet its debt interest cost from its right. operating income, right? So that's like right. if, if you had a credit card bill and it was so high that all you could do was to pay off the interest on that with your income. And you have to need, you need access to continue credit to continue operating, right? So, so this is showing like, let's call that one in six, because that's 19, so 18% would be one in six. So one in six companies would have gone out of business like that if that repo market had continued blowing up. So this little, so COVID came along at a very convenient time for the Fed. It allowed it to do something. This, come on, George, you and I, five years ago, if we'd seen anything like this, we wouldn't have believed it. And I couldn't, I wouldn't have believed that we would have been at 1% 10-year treasuries at the end of that. But then the crisis is over and look at them, look at them keep going, right? Mm, so this yeah. is what they say is going to end, right? And you said, what, 98 billion a month? Is that what you said? They're talking about 95 billion a month. 95. Uh, it was mm -hmm. 60 in treasuries and 35 in mortgage-backed securities. And, uh, you know, I don't know how that, I think that'll affect the mortgage-backed security market or mortgages uh, a lot more than treasuries. Therefore, most likely, uh, I think that's the key thing that kind of the average Joe and Jane should be watching because that will affect something that's probably applicable to most people, and that would be a mortgage rate. And uh, over 5% now for yeah, a 30 year. So, yeah, so the reason that goes up so quickly, or, or one of the many reasons, is because when you got the Fed backstopping the mortgage market, they don't care if if they take a haircut. Therefore, the negative real yield they don't, you know, they don't really acknowledge it. It's just whatever we we buy it at the price we need to, to achieve our other objectives. But in the real world, if uh, a pension fund or a bank is holding that mortgage-backed security, they're going to need a risk premium, and part of that risk premium is inflation expectations. Uh, this goes back to what you were saying earlier. Why would anyone buy a bond? And so uh, you, you're going to naturally see the mortgage rate increase faster than even Fed funds because the Fed has stopped buying a lot of those mortgage-backed securities. Now, especially if they start doing QT, because now they're still buying them. Let, let's not forget, because all they've done is tapered from $120 billion a month down to zero. But they're still buying at zero because every single day there are treasuries or mortgage-backed securities that are maturing where they're getting paid and then they're just rolling them over. So the size of their balance sheet stays the same, or it, it, it might go up a little bit for other reasons, you know, swap lines and whatnot, or uh, the standing repo facility, which is something that kind of applies to this. But um, if, if, they're, if they're actually not, if they're not rolling those bonds over, meaning they're just letting them mature and they're not buying more to replace them, that means the private sector has to absorb more and more and more of these mortgage-backed security, which will most likely increase the risk premium that the private sector demands, i.e. increase mortgage rates. Uh, so if the Fed continues to raise rates, and by the way, when they came out and made that statement, this was the Fed minutes from the last meeting, Chris, mm -hmm. uh, this is where they were talking about doing 95 in QT per month, uh, 35 billion in uh, mortgage-backed securities. They also talked about raising rates 50 basis points for the next few 
uh, Fed meetings. So and they'll still be behind the curve. Oh, well, there'll still be negative real rates, that's for sure. But you can imagine if uh, mortgage rates right now are at 5% or a little over 5%, if they do a couple, let's say 50 basis point hikes plus QT to where the private sector had to absorb a, a, a higher and higher and higher percentage demanding that risk premium. I mean, you could see mortgage rates at 7% plus very, very quickly. And I'm talking about within All right. you know, two, two or three months, something like that. I don't see how that wouldn't crash the housing market in, in many markets. I mean, listen, it's been one of it. I thought the bubble in 2008 was something, but it's nothing in my own house. I live in like a rural area of Western Massachusetts and yeah. take it for what it's worth. But I went through a refi a while back. Good timing. Um, and I had an appraiser come in and they appraised it for about 35 percent more than I bought it for. Yeah. Right. Which was just just a year and a half prior. Right. But there are markets that have been up 30, 38, even 40 percent year over year. Yeah. Right. How is that not a bubble? Well, it is. I mean, the simplest chart that I can look at is just the uh, home prices in the United States adjusted for inflation going back to 1900. You see that from 1900 to about 1997, they're flat. And which makes sense because home prices should really just go up with the rate of inflation because it's just a derivative of, of income, which in and of itself is kind of a derivative of uh, inflation, although it, it lags a bit. And then in uh, late 90s, early 2000s, you guys know what happened. It just went parabolic. till we get to a point uh, way, way, way above the historic trend. And then it comes back down 2012 and pretty much bottoms out right at its historic level, uh, going back to 1997, then going all the way back to 1900. Since that time, uh, we have gone up, not to the point where we were in 2006, we've gone even higher as far as prices adjusted for inflation. So uh, if you're gonna argue that we prices were in a bubble in 2006, you would have to also argue that uh, prices are in a bubble today. Now, the big difference is the supply side of the equation. And that's where it gets interesting because back during the GFC, there we had excess supply. Now we have very, very, very limited supply. But there is a point, just simple supply and demand, where you can destroy enough aggregate demand. And even with very, very short supply, you can still have the nominal price go down. So the, the question is, how high do mortgage rates have to go to destroy enough aggregate demand to bring nominal prices down with the supply shortage in overall housing stock? There is a yeah, number. I was there. just there is a number. There, there. there is. And we're seeing the first signs of that. I was just um, trolling around on Reddit, looking at the personal finance subreddit. And somebody asked the question yesterday and said, Hey, my, my new mortgage um, calculation, we're trying to, we're bidding on a house. The new mortgage calculation came in and it's now $300 a month more than we can afford. What do we do? You know? So you're already seeing people struggling with that because they were maxing out what they could do. And many people have had to give up on the dream of home ownership because the prices, they can't afford it um, or they have to, you know, come up with some other means. But um, let's be clear, right? This, the Fed decided it was going to rescue housing and it decided to drive mortgage rates down. That was a policy of theirs, which let's be clear, that rewards certain people and it punishes other people. 
So that's one of my big critiques of the Fed is that it's involved in social engineering. Let's reward this generation and we'll throw this generation under the bus. I think that's a terrible idea. I think it's awful. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, they've done that to the entire economy. Uh, they've, They've tried to micromanage everything. I mean, let's not forget that the interest rate is the price of money. And money is one half of every single transaction. So if you're if you've got price controls basically on yeah. money, then you're manipulating the price of everything. Therefore, there is no true price discovery, and that is going to create just an epic amount of uh, misallocation of resources and malinvestment. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can see that. You know, it, I don't know if you're if you can pull up a chart, but if you just look at a chart of real GDP in the United States. You can see this happening just right there on the chart, because if you look at 1980 to 2008, you'll see us growing at a specific trend line. And then you get the GFC and it, and it dips down, as we all know, and then it starts to grow again, but it doesn't grow at the same pace. It grow, the, the trend line flattens a bit. And then we get to the, uh, the, the COVID and then it goes down like we all know, but then it starts going back up and you get to a point where it gets a little bit flatter than uh, even the, the trend line that we had uh, after the GFC. And so what, what does this mean? This means that the more government intervention that you get, the more it acts as kind of like an emergency brake on your car that you always have on. It, it, it slows it down. And it's like this, you know, it's like Schiff says, it's a monetary heroin. I mean, that, that's the best way to look at it. And the more monetary heroin you give the economy, the more lethargic, uh, the more unhealthy it's going to be, and the longer the recoveries are going to take. You know, it's no surprise that you go back to 2008 and it took, what, four or five years for GDP just to get back up to a level that it was in uh, 2007. And you go back to, you know, some time frame like uh, uh, 1920. And we go through a, a massive depression then, and it takes like a year or two for the economy to quickly rebound and get back to a point where it was before. But that's because the, 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 the central planners are so neck deep in this stuff. You've got the Fed that's micromanaging the price of money, which distorts all price signals in the entire economy. And then you have the government uh, as a larger and larger percentage of overall GDP. You know, Chris, if you go back to uh, prior to, well, shoot, if you go back to uh, like the early 1900s, uh, the, the, the government spending as a percentage of GDP was like 5%, 5%. So what that means is that if you take all, overall GDP, that the private sector is responsible for 95% of that. So then if you fast forward to uh, 2020-ish, 2021, I remember doing the math for a whiteboard video, government spending accounted for over 55%, 55% of GDP. So think about how inefficient the government is. Just go down to your local DMV and just think to yourself that that local DMV now accounts for 55% of our economy. And it's increasing every single year. 
as far as the amount of government spending as a percentage of overall GDP. So the government is expanding and the private sector is shrinking this entire time. So should we expect anything else than for lethargic, to say the least, economic growth, if, if not zero economic growth and recession? And I think this is another thing that the bond market is telling us with the inversion of the yield curve saying, hey guys, expect a recession. I mean, the only reason we didn't go into a, a, an economic depression like we have never seen in our, uh, or even thought about in the history books in the United States uh, during the COVID and during the lockdowns is because they did all of the stimulus checks. I mean, the government, you know, what, $5 trillion in deficit spending? Well, that matters. But what happens when the stimmy checks are gone? You know, the savings rate skyrockets and the, and to your point, M2 money supply and the amount of money that's in the checking account of the average American in aggregate total goes absolutely parabolic. Well, that's fine. But what happens when there's no more, uh, you know, quote unquote money printing? What happens when you turn the spigot off? Well, now all of a sudden you've got to go back to reality. And if we're not producing enough, uh, if we're consuming far more than we produce, uh, which is definitely the case, and it's gotten far worse if you look at our trade deficit, then that means that our standard of living needs to come down significantly. The other option would be for the government to come out and continue deficit spending, but there's no free lunch. That's going to be paid for by the poor and middle class, the people you're trying to help, because the rate of inflation is going to rise or the price level is going to rise to the rate of money supply. So there, there, George, there is I, I, no... Yeah, go ahead. I pulled up Circle the Wagons. They said, what country gives their money printing and accounting to a private central bank that won't allow itself to be audited? That's genius. So, and yeah. this brings us to the hat you're wearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, th th there needs to be far more accountability. I mean, the Fed came in in March of 2020, and they bought junk debt, for heaven's sakes. They bought corporate junk debt and said, oh, oh don't yeah. worry about this Federal Reserve Act thing. Uh, it doesn't matter. We're just doing it as a special purpose vehicle. And CNBC didn't even talk about it. They didn't even acknowledge the fact that they were just blatantly disregarding uh, the, the, the legal document that is supposed to constrain them. It, it, just like the, the federal government with the Constitution. They just completely ignore it. And it, we've become a country of, of, of men and not of law. And that's a very slippery slope. So, so let me, let me um, pull something up that, that just really got my goat. So this is... Um uh, this is today's Wall Street Journal here, okay? And um, uh, so oil executives have to get in front of Congress and they have to deny price gouging, right? And so a bunch of Democrats, uh, sad to say, pull these uh, energy executives in, lambast them, and then say, yeah. we note that Exxon reported $23 billion and Chevron reported $16 billion in net income for 2021, their most profitable year since 2014, which, by the way, they had negative years in 2015, 16, 17. They had to go into deep debt to even continue paying dividends. But look at this. They're, they're going after these companies which actually produce something. Getting back to you, I'm shocked. That I can't even, 55% of our GDP was government spending. Okay, how is this even a thing? But these people are unserious to me, George. They're unserious because they don't understand that energy is the lifeblood that allows all other things to progress. That um, even these numbers, Exxon earned $23 billion. You know what Pfizer raked in last year? $20 billion for 
the vaccines, which the government, you know, force everybody to take and, and that they bought from them. Why, why don't we see Democrats holding Pfizer executives feet to the fire for, for their windfall, right? It's, it's all just political theater. It it's is. It's all absolute political theater. And if you know the very, just the basics of economics, you can see right through this nonsense. I remember just uh, over the weekend, actually, I was going back and watching one of my favorite videos from Milton Friedman. And it was on this topic because this is nothing new. I mean, Friedman was talking mm -hmm. about this in the 1970s. And uh, specifically, he was referencing the paper that I've tried to uh, research quite extensively, which is, uh, was from the Club of Rome. And this was a paper called Limits to Growth. Uh, they wrote this mm -hmm. in 1972. And they, the gentleman that wrote this, the guy that started the Club of Rome in 1968, was the keynote speaker for Klaus Schwab at his, uh, it wasn't called the World Economic Forum back then, but his, basically his Davos thing back then in 1973. So uh, I, I wanted to see if maybe Friedman had, had discussed this, which he did. And uh, he pointed out something that's very applicable to what you just showed us in that headline with the Democrats. And that there's a reason the cure for high prices are high prices. It's because it does two things. And this goes back to the price signal that they're destroying by you know, putting a, a price controls on the interest rate. But the prices do, uh, especially high prices, do two things. They increase supply and they decrease demand. So this is the natural equilibrium mechanism, right? But what are we doing right now? We're doing the opposite of that. What we're trying to do is uh, run these uh, oil companies over the coals. Uh, Elizabeth mm -hmm. Warren is talking about a, a windfall tax. Okay, well, what is that going to do? That means they're going to have less money to increase the supply. Uh, that's less money that can go into CapEx spending. And by the way, that means in, investors are already looking at them as persona non grata because of this ESG movement. So if they have to deal with a, a windfall tax, in addition to all this ESG nonsense, then they're going to have less capital to produce uh, more supply in the future. They're gonna do a lot less drilling, that's the bottom line. So the government is doing that on one hand, and then on the other hand, they're trying to take our, uh, uh, what was it, it's the, you'll probably know the acronym better than I will, it's our petroleum reserves, our-, our uh, The SPR. The SPR, SPR, there you go. Yeah. And so it was a strategic petroleum reserve, something like that. Yeah. Uh, th this is meant for an absolute emergency when we cannot get oil at any price. Uh, you know, think of right. uh, World War Three or something like that, which isn't, you know, might not be too far off. But uh, that that's what this is for. This isn't for Joe Biden to try to buy votes going into the midterms. I mean, that's not what the SP, <laughs> what the SPR is all about. Well, so and, and you're right. You said high prices. We should have had demand destruction, right? Because that's what, you know, that's my point. And they're so creating they're demand construction. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. In, in two ways, Chris, but A, by releasing this uh, to try to lower the price, which increases demand. And then B, talking about just sending people gas stimmy checks. And, yeah. and so you, you've got these politicians that are trying to make you believe that the, the, that the solution for consumer price inflation is simply just more money instead of more stuff. 
And that's what people really have a hard time getting their head around. When they see prices go up, they just think, well, the, the solution to this problem would be more money. But they don't understand the solution to that problem is more supply of the stuff that you need, but you can't buy because the price is going up. It, it, it's, it, it, it's counterintuitive there. But my point is the politicians are tag teaming the demand. They're lowering price, so increased demand. They're giving out stimmy checks, increased demand. And I'm talking about them. Well, they'll most likely give out stimmy checks for, for gas specifically and energy. And they'll blame it on Putin, of course. And uh, then they'll probably institute price controls, which will further destroy uh, supply. And then when they have to lift the price controls, that'll just make the prices go up even higher, uh, like we saw in the 1970s. But they're completely destroying the price signal, the price mechanism, and price discovery. And this just is another economic distortion from the central planners that at some point in time we will have to pay for with a reduced standard of living, whether it's a result of and Bar- deflationary asset price or, or you know, uh, you, the, the value of your dollar going down relative to goods and services, there's no free lunch. Uh, no, there isn't. And um, Barbara Brown writes in, not getting reelected due to inflation is an emergency for Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that, that is the total in the, the emergency going on right here at this point in time. Um, so, uh, so you, but the point I have here is that is that we, we seem to have these unserious leaders here, right? So they don't, the, many of them haven't sullied their hands by banging a hammer or working in a processing plant or, or, or you know, really been responsible for a P&L or, or having FTEs on a payroll. You know, a lot of them just sort of come through sort of the elite processing factories. You know, they come out of elite Ivy League schools. They get the right clerkships or internships. You know, they, they do this, that, maybe they become lawyers. And so we have a lot of unserious people who, who don't, who don't know. That's what, that's what all of this says to me is that these people don't understand how the energy business works. Even for them to say, you energy companies are gouging. It's like, okay, this is called a global market and we don't set the commodity prices. Those are set out there in this marketplace, right? So you'd have to talk about that because the, the oil companies don't set the prices here in the United States. Um, the only time you get sort of a setting of the price is when you have a long-term contract that maybe Saudi Arabia will set a price and they have a huge premium on their um, light Arab right now or, or something like that. But I'm seeing the same thing. Let me, um, I, I would love to get your take on this because to me, this is hair on fire moment uh, for me is um, hearing about how Europe has decided now that it's not going to take Russian coal. So um, let's pull this up real quick, Aaron. Uh, so, so sanity, Chris. Sanity. Look how look how look Russia's that top bar if you can't read it right way up here. That's how much of the coal that Russia supplies, and they're saying, ah, we don't need that, right? Um, yeah. And then you look at the amount of gas. So this is ranging a scale from up to this is seventy-five to one hundred percent, seventy-five to one hundred percent up here, and all the rest of these are forty, and then this is down here in twenty, thirty percent land. So it's massive amounts of gas, and then also petroleum products. Same thing, you know. We're talking over 50% for all that Eastern border right there. And, you know, 20, 30%. So this idea, George, that, um, you can just decide the technocrats in Brussels can just decide, you know what? We don't want any of that Russian coal. That's not how markets work. It's not like there's just some coal ships running around that don't have anywhere to go. This is like going down to Aldi and deciding to get an extra case of ramen, right? This is totally different. 
Yeah, it, it is. And and what people don't understand is this really doesn't it, it impacts Russia to a certain degree, but nowhere near as much as it impacts Europe or even uh, Americans. And I would go so even further and say it doesn't impact Russia. Uh, first of all, it doesn't Putin. It doesn't he could care less. You know, it, it doesn't uh, disincentivize him from doing anything, uh, even if it does. Uh, potentially negatively impact the Russian people, which I would argue it, it doesn't that much because it's not like Russia can't find another buyer. I mean, think about that. I, I used a, a chart of the price of coal the other day in one of my videos to illustrate my point. And the price of coal in this chart, I don't know their unit of measurement, but it went from about $50, uh, maybe in 2020, maybe 2021, but recently, uh, up to $350 very, very quickly. I mean, just moonshot. And now it's down to call it uh, 300. So, uh, you know, R Russia was selling this coal just, let's say a year and a half ago at 50 bucks. Now they're selling it even at a discount. Let's say they're just selling it to China and China's like, hey, I'm your only buyer. So we're not paying 300, we're paying 250. Oh, okay. Well, now they're making 250 when a year and a half ago they were making, uh, uh, let's call it 50 bucks. And by the way, uh, that would most likely be priced in dollars and their expenses are denominated in rubles. So, you know, everyone was talking about the ruble being destroyed, which, by the way, now it's up higher than it was prior to the invasion. Uh, but even when it was extremely low, that means that their margins, their profit margins for these companies uh, increase significantly because they're, uh, they're selling something denominated in one currency and the currency that their expenses are denominated in is depreciating in value. So my point there is that you're not really impacting Russia that to, to a, a great degree there, but you are having a massive impact on the poor and middle class of, of uh, Europe. And I think we'll see this also in the United States with food shortages and whatnot, um, or at least sky high prices for food. Uh, but what it really boils down to, Chris, is more of this political theater where the politicians, they don't care about you. Uh, they don't care about the future. They just care about narratives that are uh, going to get them reelected. And right now, these sanctions are a perfect example of rich people in the West, or at least people that can afford higher food prices, uh, doing whatever they need to do to make themselves feel good or feel like they're, uh, quote unquote, doing something, right? And But this is at the expense of the poor and middle class. So it's rich people feeling good at the expense of the middle class. That's what sanctions are. And, I, you know, I get a lot of uh, pushback on social media and they say, well, uh, you know, what are we going to do? Just let uh, Russia, you know, take over Europe? I'm like, listen, you've got to play the, ha the hand you're dealt. Uh, you can't play the hand you wish you had. And unfortunately, because of this ESG movement and a lot of things that we've done uh, in the past few years, we don't have a lot of leverage here. Now, I know that makes a lot of people frustrated, but that's that's just the bottom line. So people ask me, well, what should we do? And I say, well, the first thing you should do if you're going into a fight is you should stop punching yourself in the face. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's exactly what uh, Europe is doing. 
Uh, that's mm -hmm. what they will do if they stop, they completely cut off the coal. That's what they'll do if they cut off the natural gas, uh, the oil, the fertilizer, all of these things. And they've made carve outs for these within the sanctions the central planners have. But what they didn't expect is that because there is so, you know, because they've pushed this kind of woke narrative and cancel culture, the corporations have picked this up. And even the corporations now are basically sanctioning themselves because they don't want future blowback from, uh, you know, the woke crowd, let's say, or from the cancel culture group. So effectively, uh, the European Union has uh, sanctioned Russia across the board or to a greater degree than they initially had anticipated. And I think that all this talk about, you know, further sanctions and we got to need to sanction harder and harder and harder. You know, I sent out a tweet today and I, I, I you know, set out a lot of these talking points and a lot of the, the data that shows that uh, the sanctions disproportionately affect us negatively. And I say, you know, you've got the administration and everyone talking about more and more sanctions. How many sanctions do we need to the point where we destroy our own economy? Because that, that's, that's the direction this goes, right? Uh, especially in yep. the United States where, uh, you know, we can't afford to have interest rates, let's say Fed funds, at 2 3 4%. Or we can't afford to have positive real rates. Well, what happens when we institute all these sanctions and prices go up? And, you know, another thing that people don't understand is if you have prices go up in Europe, that's going to suck supply from the rest of the world. And therefore, in order to compete with uh, the, the demand in Europe, then the prices are going to have to rise in the United States. The prices are going to have to rise in Colombia. The prices are going to have to rise in Japan. So, uh, you know, uh, Americans like to think that, oh, well, you know, we've got all the gas and oil we need or, oh, we've got all the food we need. No, you don't, because you don't have the inputs to, uh, as an example, with the food. You've got a lot of farmland, but that farmland isn't going to do you much good when you don't have the fertilizer. And you say, well, we can get it from Canada. Well, like, like potash as an example. And okay, but you're going to get it at a much, much higher price because if you cut off the supply from Russia, the whole, uh, or the whole world is going to be competing for that same fertilizer from Canada. Therefore, the farmers in the United States are going to either use less, which means the yield from the crops are a lot less, or they're going to have to raise their prices enough to compensate for the for the additional uh, increase to their input. So again, people just really don't understand because they get too emotionally whipped up by the media to really think through the ramifications of, of the sanctions. And there's just, uh, I, I hate to say it, I, I really do, but there's very few ways that we can push back against Russia right now that won't have a greater negative impact on us. I'd completely agree. And and by the way, I want to have um, some of this conversation because, you know, you and I, we have to dance around the censorship line and I've bumped up against it quite a bit and it's moving target all the time. There's some things yeah. I want to talk to you about and get your point of view on, but that's going to have to come after we end this live cast and we'll record that and then we can put that up. That'll be up at my site at Peak Prosperity. You can, you're free to put it up um, wherever you can, but there's things I do like to talk about that I don't talk about in public quite as much. And that includes really what I think that the World Economic Forum is up to, what mm -hmm. I really think about the narrative control, what I really think is happening. Because listen, there's only two ways to look at this for me right now. Either they, our leadership, is that devoted, slavishly devoted to this narrative you talked about and the narrative, ESG narrative, or all the other narratives, the woke narratives, whatever those are, 
those take off and ripple through so fast that I, I, I'm astonished by them. So either that's happening, but that's just incompetence that that's happening, yeah, or and, there's and a plan. And the dollar too, Chris. We didn't even talk about the, the dethroning of the dollar as a result of this, you know, the woke narrative and everything that you're talking about. Let's go well, ahead we and should. That, Russia's FX accounts, and let's just start the wheels in motion to the dollar losing reserve currency status as if that isn't going to negatively impact us, not oh just now. But, but your your kids, your grandkids, I mean, you want to talk about, uh, uh, you know, consumer price inflation. Um, and and I've, all, I've really thought through over the last couple of weeks, I've asked myself the question, is Ukraine really about Ukraine or is Ukraine about the United States dollar? And I think it might be about the dollar that, you know, if you're Russia, if you're sitting here thinking, OK, we've got this problem with Ukraine. But you got a lot bigger problem with the United States from a standpoint of they can just sanction whoever they want. You know, they just sanctioned Putin's daughters uh, today for heaven's sake. And, and they're although, seizing private assets, yachts, right? Yeah. And, and although these uh, sanctions might hurt us more than it hurts them, uh, the fact that there's a country. I mean, just think if China, you know, I, I walked through this thought experiment on one of my videos today where if we do lose the reserve currency status, let's say by uh, 2035, you know, because it doesn't happen overnight. But if we mm. lose it by 2035, and let's say then uh, the yuan is the reserve currency, well, that gives China the ability to sanction us, just like we sanction Iran, as an example. So, mm -hmm. and, it, and it allows them to sanction individual people. So I'd, I'd like to ask, you know, the, the average American, what would you do if China sanctioned Canada so they couldn't sell us any fertilizer in the future? And then let's just say that you got really pissed off about that and went on social media to said, hey, this is a bunch of BS. Great. The Chinese government, I'm sure they'll be using a CBDC at that time, and they'll be using a social score that will apply to Americans. And they can do this because they've got the global reserve currency. And they say, oh, we don't like what you said. Now we're going to go ahead and sanction you. They can sanction people at an individual level. You, you see, th mm -hmm. this, <laughs> this is the direction we're headed. Why? Because the politicians come out and they say, oh, we're going to go ahead and freeze uh, Russia's FX reserves. So every single other country on the whole planet, even the countries that are friendly to the United States, they sit there and say, well, if they did that to Russia, well, they can do that to me next. So I want to use the dollar less and less and less to settle for these commodities, which means less and less and less dollar-denominated debt globally in the euro-dollar system, which means less future demand for dollars. So when we continue to uh, increase the size of our uh, deficit, of our, uh, our trade deficit, then that means all those dollars that we're exporting are no longer being sucked up through this dollar-denominated debt, they circulate, they get traded for other currencies. You increase the supply of dollars, that increases the price, that increases the price for everything that we are importing uh, to the tune of, you know, $100 billion a month, and that, that makes the problem worse. Now, there is a, a silver lining that we can talk about where that might increase over the long run, that might increase the level of manufacturing in the United States, but, but that's only if we back off the regulation, we have to back off some of the taxes. Uh, we've got to make America great again, not to use that term, but we need to make entrepreneurship uh, great again. We need to make capitalism, At least not free market capitalism hard. great again in order yeah. to take advantage of having a currency that has depreciated in value because there are pros and cons there. There are definitely pros and cons. 
but I'm just afraid that we're going to continue to demonize free market capitalism. So the only thing that we're going to experience from the dollar losing its reserve status is the con side of the equation, and we're not going to get any of the benefits. Well, so this death of the dollar is sort of, I, I titled this whole thing, this loss of the petrodollar. The petrodollar is a really important thing, um, and a lot of people don't understand it. It was a genius thing that I think, you know, Kissinger set it up. He was absolutely genius because we came off the gold standard August 15th, 1971, just a little bit of scrambling. Things were not looking good there for the next few years, and uh, food inflation hit an all-time high in 1973-74, looking a little dodgy so the dollar had to be backed by something but we couldn't do it honestly we couldn't do it with holding gold and sticking to our our budgets right so mm -hmm. what happened instead uh kissinger says to the saudis hey listen here's the thing you sell your oil but you only sell it for dollars hey no need for those dollars to even leave the united states bank of new york will take and shift money to your account over here at mellon and you can buy treasuries with it. So so what a sweet deal, right? We just trade fantasy digits across servers in New York and we get all this oil coming in, right? Which is the lifeblood of an economy. So that whole it's system a lot, was, it's was- a lot more than that too. You're just talking about domestic dollars. Uh, the, the, yeah. the dollars outside the United States and the Euro dollar system were recycled into treasuries as well. Well, and, and every country, George, that wanted to buy oil because of this system had to do it in, in dollars. So if you're Peru and you wanted to buy oil from Kuwait, you did it in dollars. So that means by default, Peru has to run a positive trade balance with the U.S. in order to have positive dollars. So it's kind of like you force every player to have to want to export to you to get your dollars, right? So it's a good deal. And yeah. there's trillions, trillions and trillions and trillions of these petrodollars out there. But they're not really out there. They're actually in treasuries, they're in bank accounts, a lot of them got recycled back into the economy. So that is an awesome thing in forward. What we're looking at here, why I think this is so important, why I want to have you on is this is about to go into reverse. Like we can feel that the tide is already beginning to slack and it's going to go to slack tide and then the tide's going to go the other way in this story. This is the biggest event in my life, as far as I'm concerned. Because yeah. Yeah, I, I we got this huge privilege, it's going away. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a privilege and it's a burden. It was a burden from the standpoint uh, as it allowed us to hollow out our manufacturing base uh, be, because we had that bid for treasuries, that, that artificial bid constantly. Therefore, we had artificially low interest rates. Therefore, we could consume more than we produce. Therefore, if we're consuming more than we produce, someone's got to produce it. So then we can just go ahead and offshore all of that production and we can just keep giving them green pieces of paper and they'll give us all the stuff that they make. Yeah. You know, sweet deal. But what that does is that makes it so, you know, we don't have to produce any of this stuff in the United States. So it, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, so, you know, if we lose reserve status, again, I think it would be a blessing and a curse. But unfortunately, because we've built the economy around this excess consumption, and uh, asset bubbles, we're going to have to go through that two, three, four, maybe five years of, of significant economic pain and a lowering of the standard of living in the United States to come out the other side to where then we can start taking advantage of having a currency that is uh, devalued against all other currencies that gives us that economic edge. But there again, if we don't do the right things. If we increase regulations, if we continue to demonize capital, 
if we continue to demonize entrepreneurs and producers, then the currency just goes down, 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 down. And although it doesn't give us, although it does give us a competitive edge, we don't take advantage of that. And then the only thing you get is just long-term, you know, decline in the, the, the standard of living uh, as a result. So, uh, you know, th there's, there's so many uh, variables that make this extremely fascinating, but the, the key component there is that the wheels were set in motion the second we froze Russia's FX accounts or Re Russia's foreign reserve accounts. And uh, yeah. you know, at the very least, at the very, you could argue for the dollar being transactional as far as the global currency uh, for quite some time. And I would totally agree. But the bottom line, these central banks are going to start holding fewer and fewer dollars uh, as reserve assets for obvious reasons. You know, you got the liability that, uh, hey, my, my asset is a liability of a commercial bank or the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve controls yeah. those uh, banks, so they could just cut me off just like that. And that's never been done before. So really, the only reserve asset they can hold that isn't someone else's liability right now is gold. Uh, you, may, you might want to argue Bitcoin, but uh, you know something they're familiar with and something they're comfortable with is going to be gold. So that means that there's fewer dollars that are taken to buy treasuries uh, because they're now choosing to hold gold. Uh, so if there's not that demand, that bid for treasury, then those treasury, those interest rates go up. And that means mortgage rates go up. That means auto loans go up. That means credit card debt, uh, the interest rates go up. And you're doing that in a, an economy that's, what, 70% consumption. So, th th so this is, uh, again, the short-sightedness or the, the, the unintended or maybe the intended consequence of all of this political theater. You know, it, it reminds me of a story I heard, Chris. I can't recall where I heard it, but back when we, uh, we set off the atomic bomb in Japan, I remember the hearing that uh, our allies at the time saw that and they said, whoa, 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 time out. We, we, okay, now we realize that the United States government is really is willing to drop a nuclear bomb on another country. Now, we are friendly with the United States right now, but are we going to be in five years? I don't know. Are we going to be in 10 years? Who knows? The United States, they could elect some crazy person. We don't know that. So what ended up happening is a lot of our allies actually started their own uh, nuclear program as a result of what we did at the end of World War II. Well, what we just did 30 days ago was the equivalent of a financial nuclear bomb. So all of these countries, we can see India, we can see Saudi Arabia, we can see China, and obviously Russia, they're starting to do business in rubles and yuan and other types of currencies. And, and for obvious reasons, right? And so I would argue that even our allies that we have are going to look at what we did to Russia and say, wait a minute, maybe we're next. And they're going to start holding fewer, fewer of those dollars, i.e. treasuries, on their balance sheet as a reserve asset. And that means that, again, those interest, there's going to be that tailwind to interest rate. That doesn't mean that interest rates go to 10% tomorrow. And it doesn't mean that the dollar uh, just is toilet paper tomorrow. I, I mean, I think short term, there's a good argument for the dollar actually appreciating in value. 
But what it means is five, 10, 15 years down the road, the dollar is going to buy you far, 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 far less stuff than it does today. And it will most likely, unless we do some, make some significant changes, it'll most likely decrease the standard of living in the United States. Now, um, I like the nuclear bomb analogy. So I'm thinking this is a little intentional because remember, it was just just a couple of months ago. Canada did something that to me was a nuclear bomb where they froze the bank accounts of people, people, citizens of their own country, because they had retroactively decided that what those people had done, they didn't like it politically. Right. right? right, right. They they hadn't broken any laws. They donated to a trucker movement to, to give funds to truckers who as far as I could tell, were Canadians, right? So they were giving money to people, and that wasn't illegal, and there was nothing wrong with it. But retroactively, they decided, we're going to freeze your bank accounts. Now, that was shocking, but what was even more shocking to me, George, was that the banks went along with it. TD Bank, CIBC, they all just like, ah, sure, we'll do that, because the government told us to, right? So instantly, right, you know, you can see that that has a freezing effect. I I went down, I'd been banking with TD here at a U.S. uh, branch for, it's been my main business account for 14 years. I'm shutting all my accounts down. I'm moving to a different bank just because why not, right? That that pisses me off. And, um, but then they did that to Russia and and they showed to Russia, hey, your sovereign reserves are neither sovereign nor reserves, right? Um, And that's because we don't like what you're doing right now. And here's what I don't, I'm not a fan of war. I think war is really a bad idea. So I'm not a fan of the invasion. I'm not a fan of that. But I wasn't a fan of what happened in Libya or Syria or Iraq or Yemen right now. I'm not a fan of it anywhere. Absolutely. But we have double standards going on right now, huge double standards around this, that somehow this is totally unacceptable. But we, you know, when Russia does it, it's a war crime. When we do it, it's collateral damage, different language, different stuff, all that, right? So, So leaving aside all of that, just this idea that we have unserious people who are going to take the serious diplomacy and 70 years of, of dollar, 60 years of, of dollar reigning post Bretton Woods, post, uh, you know, Brett, the, the petrodollar recycling. This is an established system. It's been working and they're just going to shred it. But I don't think they know what they're doing. Or if they do, or, or their intention they do. is to destroy things. Right. Yeah, Maybe, maybe and, they do. I mean, that's maybe they do. Well, which is worse that they do or they don't, which makes, which is the worst outcome in this story? Uh, Ignorance or malice? I I don't know. I don't know. They they both get you to the same place. So it's kind of academic. I think they both. This is why I want to reach people, George, uh, and same as you is give the context, because the chance of this destroying our future prosperity is very high. The chance of this accidentally working out to the favor of the average person is vanishingly small. That's how I see it. Yeah, especially for the poor and middle class. That that that's for sure. And you know, there there's a feedback loop there too, Chris, in uh, the rates going up and the the dollar being used less and less, especially as a reserve asset, which is important for those treasury rates. And uh, at a certain level, would be important for consumer price inflation in the United States. We've just been talking about the liability of uh, uh, of a central bank holding dollars, as an example, on their balance sheet because uh, the Fed can freeze that or a bank can freeze that and you don't have access to it. And, uh, you know, right now we're not even allowing Russia to make the uh, payments to us in dollars. 
we're, we're not even allowing them to make uh, payments that they owe us. <laughs> it's, it's madness. But the, the feedback loop, if you think about it, is if the dollar starts to lose more and more value, especially to oil, especially to energy, this uh, incentivizes other central banks to get rid of their dollars at an even faster rate, which would make the uh, value of the dollar go down even more, which would make more central banks continue to sell their treasuries or sell their dollar assets. Why is this? You got to remember why most of these sovereigns hold on to dollars or treasuries in the first place. It's not just because we did a deal with Saudi Arabia back in 19, what, you know, 73, 74 with Kissinger and the petrodollar. It's because the uh, countries like China, they make a lot of stuff, but they don't have a lot of energy. So what they like to do is hold on to these treasuries because they say, okay, well, in the future, we're going to be able to buy X amount of oil with these treasuries because it's the it's denominated in dollars, it's global reserve currency, it's most likely going to maintain its value relative to what we need, which is i.e. energy in the future. But what happens is if the dollar starts to lose value at a significant rate relative to the stuff they need to buy in the future, now all of a sudden, this is a further incentive for them to get rid of those dollars or not buy those treasuries on top of the incentive they have by looking around and seeing the United States pull the financial nuclear nuclear option in freezing the FX reserves for the Russian central bank. So th- there are so many things that we are doing right now that just don't make any sense whatsoever, uh, un- unless you could argue just sheer unadulterated short-sightedness and stupidity, or to your point, malice. Um, I, I don't know. Hopefully it's the latter. <laughs> I don't know which is worse. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. But I, so, so here's how, here's how dumb it is. Um, I read this study. It comes out of the UK. A professor put it out, but you know, he's well-placed and you know, he's read in, in the political circles. And he said, well, I'm pretty sure we could decarbonize, you know, because climate change, but we can decarbonize and we can get there pretty quickly because when I analyzed it, he said oil and gas was really only 8% of the UK economy. So we could get by without 8% of our economy, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like no, no, that's like saying um, uh, when, when I make heat out of my body, that's only 8% due to the oxygen I'm breathing. The rest is due to the, <laughs> you know, kind of like energy is the master resource. I don't know how people don't get this. I, I don't, I keep I pounding the table about this because like without that 8%, you have none of the other 92% period, right? You, yeah, energy I, I, is everything in life. Yeah. I, I mean, to illustrate this point further, I, whenever I talk about uh, the gas prices going up in the United States and how that will just really significantly affect the economy negatively, I have people respond by saying, oh, that's no big deal. I don't drive. I, I just, I ride my bike to work. So that's no big deal. Like, no, uh-huh. <laughs> who, who do you think transports the food that you buy at the grocery store? And what do you think they put into their truck? Uh, it, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not air. It's, it's not oxygen. It, it's, it's diesel fuel. And so it, the people just have a hard time making that connection. You know, another thing too, I heard the, and I forgot the gentleman's name, but he 
runs one of the biggest chemical manufacturers in Germany. And these chemicals go into pretty much everything. And what he needs to make the majority of these chemicals is natural gas. So he said, listen, if you're considering cutting off the natural gas, he's talking to the politicians, if you're considering cutting off the natural gas from Russia, you, you don't even, you can't even fathom the domino effect that you are going to create. Because just as a small example, you know, our company isn't going to be able to produce the chemicals. Therefore, other companies aren't going to produce the stuff. And therefore, it's going to get to a point very quickly where there is nothing on the, the shelves at the grocery store, uh, where people just look at natural gas in Germany as though it's just about heating your house. But they, they just cannot get their head around how the energy, to your point, is, is, is literally in every single thing that we touch. And if we have less energy, then by, by definition, we have to have a lower economic output. So the, the less energy you have, the lower your standard of living goes. That, that it's just, that's the bottom line. And, and people need to understand that. Well, absolutely. And, and this is where bad narratives get you in trouble. So I've seen for the past 10 years, but it's really picked up steam in the last five years. There's, there's been this really strong push. Like anytime Elon Musk does anything or there's an electric car, like it gets a lot of very positive press to the point that I, I get this. People think this is a witty rejoinder to me all the time. I say, you know, if diesel goes away, you know, this is going to be a really bad problem right now. Oh, Chris, you don't understand. We'll drive electric cars. Look at all the electric car subsidies. So if I could, I would pull out this chart that shows how many miles are driven currently by electric cars compared to um, fossil fuel means, diesel or jet fuel or, or whatever gasoline and it's such a thin little line like if you you know you have to kind of expand the picture to even see it right it's like one pixel out of like you know this big chart it's tiny so not that it's we won't get there eventually but it's that's not the case today but yeah i think you were talking about that was the ceo of basf saying that thing and then, i think he said oh that that sounds said, right that sounds right he said yeah by the way you cut off our gas Forty thousand people are getting furloughed like next week right like yeah you know from their company alone Right. So and then the spill on effects from all of that, um, it's it's there is there's no replacement for the fossil fuels for the Haber-Bosch process to make ammonia fertilizer for the BASF processes, for anything we were making ethylene for any of the feedstocks on and on and on. Most people don't know, but 70 percent of our oil goes to move things around. Thirty percent goes into innumerable processes, industrial processes that undergird everything from pharmaceuticals to every clothes you name. It's hard. Right. It's, it's impossible right. to name you know, billions of different things. Yeah. One, and so if you skinny that down, if you run that down, eh, you know, you're going to have fewer things. You're going to have a smaller economy in the future. It, it, yeah. It, it's, it's not that you're going to have fewer people. Yeah. You're going to have too. death at a massive, massive scale. So that, that's really what the, the, the people, they, they try to make everything like a movie, whether it's just good versus evil. And that, that's as nuanced as they get. Or they, they, they look at things as though it's just, well, this is just very simple, Chris. All we have to do is just start producing more energy from uh, solar and wind. As if the, the, that process just happens uh, instantly. Or as if moving to green energy doesn't require a massive amount 
of carbon energy. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, as an example, let's say you want to throw up some windmills. That's Thank fantastic. You. Last time I checked, those windmills are made out of steel. Last time I checked, the only way you could make steel is if you had coal. So if, if, you, if you just think about it, you know, just past step one, mm -hmm. you realize that there is no way that we can transition into green energy if we reduce the amount of carbon energy that we use right now. The, the, we, we have to increase the amount of carbon energy we use over the next few years if we are to get to this kind of utopian vision. And, uh, and then you have to worry about the, um, uh, the energy density of the actual source that you're using. You know, if you're going to a less dense yeah. energy, then again, you got the, econ the economic activity going down. And people say, oh, well, that's fine. You know, we can take a hit on the economic activity. We don't have to grow forever. Okay, but what you have to realize is there are no uh, definitive solutions here. There are only trade-offs. So if you want clean air, that's great. That's going to reduce the economy. That's also going to kill hundreds of millions of people across the globe. There is no way of getting around that. And, and that's what people, they don't understand the decisions that they have in front of them. They think that there's just this one um, silver bullet that we could achieve if only we would get these crazy alt-right Republicans out of the way. If only we could get these crazies like George Gammon and, and, and Dr. Chris Martinson, if we could only get them off of YouTube, if we could just censor all of their misinformation, then mm -hmm. we could allow you know, our politicians to spend all of this money and we would be generating all of our energy from wind and solar uh, you know, in two or three years and then we're completely divested from Russia. We got nothing to worry about. They, they actually believe that this is an option and we could achieve this option if it wasn't for just all the stupid people that are denying the science. And they just don't realize that that, that is not an option at all. And you've got just you've got a series of bad options. So you've got to choose the least bad. And and people again, they like to live in a movie where where there's uh you know somehow the Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible can come in and just save the day at at the end of the movie and make everyone feel good. That's not reality. Now, uh, thank you, because you mentioned so many important things. The energy density, very few people get that. Re really important. And uh, a friend of mine, Nate Hagens, he doesn't call them um, renewables. He calls them rebuildables, which you put the wind tower up. T 20 years later, you got to put it back up again because it wears out, right? And the solar panels wear out. So it's not like you put them up and we're done and we sail off into this green utopia and we're all living off of like, you know, green energy. You got to keep rebuilding those. So the first question a serious person would ask is, can we build any of those things just using the output from those things? Now, that yeah, would right. be an interesting experiment. Like, we should do that. We should say, here's unlimited funds, you know, Milwaukee. We'll pick a city. Like, we're going to, we're going to, we'll set you up with unlimited solar and wind. But... You have to start rebuilding these things, and you got to figure out how to do that using the energy from those things. And if there's any energy left over after that, that's what you get to live on. Yeah, that wouldn't would be that be true... the definition of sustainable, Chris? It would. I, I thought that was the definition <laughs> of sustainable. <laughs> that that would be sustainable. We don't have anything like that. We have no plan B. I just watched the energy policy just came out, and I, I read through it. Not a single thing in there for efficiency. 
right? Like if we really want, like the United States right now burns twice as much fossil fuels as somebody in Europe. You go to Europe, you find out they live in smaller places. They have heat pumps. You know, there's a variety of things they do, but that would be the biggest bang for our buck. Insulate our homes, put heat pumps on, things like that. No money for that, right? It's just, so it's not serious. And that's why, whether it's malice or incompetence, George, I'm telling you, we're sailing straight over this waterfall at this point in time. You know, Chris, I I saw a tweet from none other than Elon Musk the other day saying Mm -hmm. that he, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said he's come to the conclusion that the corporate ESG movement is the devil. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, and and I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not uh, huh. sensation. I'm not using hyperbole there. It, th- those were yep. he either said the devil or a demon or, or you know something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is Elon Musk coming out, uh, the guy who started Tesla um, and you know Solar City and everything. And uh, you know, you, people should should pay attention to that. That's for sure. Um, again, there are you know Thomas Sowell taught us this so many years ago. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. So we've got to have a a non-emotional adult conversation about the actual trade-offs that we're dealing with to determine the best path forward. Another way to say that, I love that quote um, that I've been saying for a long time, is you have to understand the difference between problems and predicaments. Problems Mm. have solutions. Predicaments just have outcomes. So you have to manage that in some way, right? So, you know, Japan topped out for population in 2008, trundling down, aging. Um, that's not a problem. You don't solve that with some magic thing. It's, it's a predicament to manage. But what are they doing in their banking system? They're like, we need to keep the debt cycle growing. So, that, so the debt per capita in Japan is exploding, right? Um, at the same time, they have fewer and fewer viable workers coming into the system. It's just, it's a completely brain dead idea. But it, it, it's, that's, that's really my biggest complaint, such as it is these days is that all these people are in these positions of leadership. How do they not see that this is completely unsustainable, this trajectory, and that the longer we persist, the worse this is going to be because, you know, you you don't want to deal with your predicament when the longer you wait on a predicament, even if you have to manage the outcomes, the longer you wait, typically the fewer and fewer options you have to begin managing that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I believe, and uh, this, I go back to Milton Friedman, uh, the the way that you solve this problem and get us onto other sources of energy that could be superior, which will only be figured out by entrepreneurs in, in the private sector. So again, we've got to stop demonizing these people and we have to stop, stop demonizing capital. But it, it's to let the free market set the price. And mm-hmm. so, you know, again, right, right now, I, 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 I don't like what we're doing with these sanctions. But uh, we should just let the free market set the price. And if, this, if, if the price for oil is 150 a barrel, then so be it. If it goes up to 300 a barrel, then so be it. Um, it's going to cause a lot of pain. I get it. But if, if you want to, um, you, you know, if you want the private sector uh, to figure out a solution, you've got to let the price rise. Uh, that, that's, that's the only way to do it. And that just goes back to Milton Friedman in the 1970s. Yep. Well, George, I have a few more things to talk to you about, but we're going to close out this live cast here because um, these other things I'm pretty sure are, are going to get us censored. So um, yeah. I, we'll, we'll continue that on and um, we'll be posting those at peakprosperity.com. But before we close this out, Rebel Capitalist is uh, is your website and your and your YouTube channel. What else? Where do people go to find you? 
Oh, they can just look up my name, George Gammon. It's just G-A-M-M-O-N. I've got two YouTube channels, the George Gammon channel, where we do the whiteboard videos and the interviews, and then the Rebel Capitalist channel. And if you want to check out the, the live event, the conference you're going to be speaking at, uh, that's just rebelcapitalistlive.com. Fantastic. Those whiteboards are amazing. Uh, really just fantastic oh, stuff. So, yeah, thank you so much for all the educating you do. I, I, you're just doing a huge service to the world and, you know, freely that's, giving your time to that's the educate right people. There, that's it? That is the magic whiteboard? That's, that's tomorrow's whiteboard video right there. <laughs> U.S. after dollar. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like what happens to the U.S.? What does the U.S. look like in 10 or 15 years after oh, the dollar yeah. is no longer the reserve currency? So I go through that thought experiment. Well, great. And I, I just my last uh, video update was around just tracking what's happening with agriculture right now and the loss of fertilizers. And, mm. and get this. Here, th- here's one fun little factoid that emerges from that. The world is going to run out, not run out, but it, it begins, it hits a peak of output of phosphorus in about 2030, which used to sound far away, but now it sounds really close. Yeah, and, right. and then, and then it go, it's, just, it's a hard rock mineral. It's a non-renewable natural resource. We, we mine it. We put it on a field and then we flush it into the ocean, never to be yeah. seen again. Yeah, and by right. the way, who produces most of the phosphorus? Morocco. China. Yeah, China, produ- they, they might not produce the most, but Ch- China produces a significant amount of phosphorus. And I know this because I, I, I looked it up about nine months ago, or it's either nine months ago, a year or something like that. Uh, they stopped, they, they made it illegal to export phosphorus, which makes you kind of scratch your head and think, okay, did Putin kind of give Xi Jinping the signal that uh, this is going to happen? And therefore, it would be tough to get mm-hmm. fertilizer. Oh, it's therefore, a huge story. You need to keep all of your phosphorus and not sell it to anybody. And oh, by the way, and you probably did a story on this too, that China has been stockpiling every type of commodity. And now they, they hold the most reserves of almost everything, such as wheat, soybeans, uh, phosphorus that we were talking about. I think they hold 50% of the global reserves in wheat right now. And again, you have to well, ask yourself, you know, did Putin kind of give them the heads up there? Well, it's kind of like they have serious people, They and they do. Um, China has a lot of serious people in positions of power, very well-educated, forward-thinking. Um, I've talked with a bunch of them. It, it's, yeah, they're, ser- they're serious people. They, they get it. They understand what's happening to the world at this point in time. But Putin saw this coming. Remember, it was 2018. His treasuries went from about 120 billion in the reserves down to three billion. <laughs> like and what all happened at once. to gold, too, Chris? And what happened to gold? <laughs> yep. Uh, and if so, you go back to Crimea, 2014, when we laid the first sanctions on him, what did he do? He started stockpiling gold. Yep. And I believe China's been doing it too. They're they're extra cagey with their gold numbers. I don't believe any of them that they put out. Um, it feels more they're vacuuming up a lot more. And and uh, I know. Was talking with somebody a while ago and they said that they have a uh, a reward at their refinery if anybody can find a bar that actually has a china mint stamp on it meaning that's a, the gold escaped from china it was manufactured domestically and then um they haven't seen any of it so mm. china's number three producer number four something like 400 tons a year or something but at any rate nobody's seen it so so they're just busy not um stockpiling that too not releasing it to the world so yeah, yeah. it's almost you know, like they thing- see this coming and, and another thing that would be fun to talk about uh, here, once we go to the other thing, is uh, Russia came out and said that they would buy uh, gold at uh, 5,000 rubles per gram. 
And uh, I think they that, just suspended that today. Oh, did they? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because that, if, if you think through the uh, ruble appreciating in value against the dollar, that could create an arbitrage opportunity that could just make the price of gold go ballistic. Yeah, they suspended it because the the equivalent price today would have been about 2047 an ounce, uh, which created a huge arbitrage opportunity because they, when they did that, the, the ruble was losing value very, very rapidly. Um, and yeah. now it's round tripped that all the way back down yeah. and, and even more so. So, yeah. Hey, we're going to close this out. Thank you, everybody, for uh, being yeah. here today. And this live yeah, cast has been for, great. Yeah, thanks for being on the live stream, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. Um, and we'll keep doing this. And uh, I'm going to have in my live stream weekly on Thursdays at 7. Love to see you back. Um, and uh, George and I are going to continue this conversation. And if you like to find it, it'll be over at Peak Prosperity um, probably within a few hours after we get it recorded. So thanks for listening, everybody. Really appreciate it. Great reading your comments here. And we'll see you next time.